According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me in Philippians chapter 3, verse uh, 17. Philippians three seventeen through 21. This is the fourth and final segment of chapter 3. And so uh, we're ready to begin the fourth portion of this chapter and uh, discuss our heavenly citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the impact of verse 20 should, uh, should hit us hard as it's designed to do as we uh, observe the right examples, as we observe the wrong examples, and, uh, and we live our lives accordingly. Before we get started tonight, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study this evening. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for this evening and the blessing that we have to assemble together. We thank You for the privilege that it is to study the living and abiding Word of God. Father, I thank You for uh, Your plan and uh, for the design of your plan that calls for us to live here and now in this, uh, in this day and age, in this location, Father, uh, where we have so many resources available, uh, multiple Bibles for every Christian, and all the, the software and the Bible study tools and every advantage conceivable, Father, that for so many years of church history, this just was not available. And yet here we are, and uh, we thank you for it. We know that to whom much is given shall much be required, so uh, keep us humble, keep us faithful, and, uh, and feed us from your truth tonight, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have a microphone ready to go. Outstanding. So uh, we, we don't want to take our first few minutes this evening for any Q&A and uh, handle any questions that you might have. If there was anything on Sunday maybe that was not clear or something you read in a book or heard on the radio or... Your crazy coworker was telling you about it, and you couldn't believe they were dealing with that. Anything at all on your mind? Question and answer tonight. And uh, Bill's not here tonight. He normally gets the first question, so we'll we'll just skip that and throw it out there to whoever else wants to wants to go first tonight. All right, we're going to cross over here to Eliezer. My question is about the difference between uh, grace and mercy. Okay. Um, in that, that I've been thinking about it, and uh, the uh, prayer of the Pharisee and the publican, Lord have mercy on me, um, uh, makes me think that mercy is related to the past sins versus grace. Uh, for instance, things like, Lord, give me the grace to have the fruits of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, so grace is more of a future um, thing versus mercy is a past relates to the past event. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Would you concur, differ, or what your thoughts are? I, I, I'd have to think about that. I don't know that I would because I know the grace of God saved me, and so there's a whole lot of past there that got forgiven by the grace of God. You know, when you get saved, um, clearly there's distinctions, and and, and that's because. Um, we hold to the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, that God uses the words He wants to use when He uses them. And so uh, when you study grace, you realize that's charis, is your Greek vocabulary. Mercy is eleos. 
Um, and so on a New Testament basis, you can survey the usage of those terms and see the ways that they're used and the context and so forth. It gets a little murkier in the Old Testament because there's really not a... You have, you have chesed, you have other terms that seem to blend charis and, and, and eleos and some of these other terms. And so it's not as, it's not as easy a study to do in the Old Testament. And, and when we were looking at this a couple of weeks ago with Norm Geisler, uh, I thought he was really playing fast and loose with some of the vocabulary he was talking about because he was he was mentioning these different terms for for mercy, and then he was showing us verses that didn't use those terms, you know. And I thought, well, that's that's not really the way to do it. So, um, what I like to do, I, I pull up your you know your word study guides and and just take a look at the at the terms like grace, and uh, and you'll find the, the the Hebrew vocabulary, the Greek vocabulary. And uh, like but see some of these uh, when you look at these, uh, you'll find that not all of these are going to be using chorus in the Septuagint, and, and they're going to have some some adjustments there. But there's your grace terminology. Um, same thing in the Greek. There's your chorus, 121 uses there, so there's quite a few, and that's that's just worth you know spending an afternoon just reading through the passages and seeing all the ways that the New Testament uses charis, that the Old Testament uses chen, and, uh, and, and so forth. Then come back and do the same thing all over again with mercy. And, uh, and then find where they intersect. Find the, worst, the, the verses that use both. It's interesting to me that Paul's typical greeting to any church that he writes to is grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. But when he's writing in the pastorals to Timothy and to Titus, he, he throws mercy into the middle of that. He says grace, mercy, and peace. And so how does mercy get added to grace and peace when he's writing a, a pastoral epistle as opposed to a church epistle? That's, uh, that's curious to me. So uh, I think without even any further study on that, I would just say that pastors need mercy. And I can prove that by the, the statement I just made there, that Paul throws the mercy edition in, in the middle of grace and peace when he's writing to, to Timothy and Titus. So, does that answer your question? Okay, I appreciate that. Other questions tonight? Let's cross the aisle then. Be bipartisan. Yes, sir. Uh, on, on Sunday, we heard about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and concerning the judgment seat of Christ. Yes. And how uh, we're accountable as believers concerning how we build. Mm-hmm. And we're told to build with gold, silver, precious stone, not wood, hay, and stubble. Right. And so concerning the judgment seat of Christ mentioned in Romans chapter 14, verse 12, that verse says, um, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So is this another aspect of our accountability? I believe so. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Uh, I think it's the same event. I don't think there's multiple judgments. So, uh, so the judgment seat of Christ and the judgment seat of God, I think, are one and the same for church age believer priests. And uh, we will give an account. So I think in addition to the fire that strikes our works and the display of what happens there, either simultaneously with that or just after that or right before that or what have you, uh, we will have to give an account. And that's a personal account. And I believe the parable that addresses that when we looked at the the slaves that came to the master and said, you entrusted five uh, to me and and here are five more, that's the, the, the parable that relates to us giving an account. Basically, we say, this is what you gave us and this is what we did. And, and that's all just grace. Because it's by the grace of God we are what we are. It's by the grace of God we do what we do. I think um, any of the whining or complaining or excuse-making, uh, we won't be doing any of that. 
because we're regenerate and our sin's going to be removed and we're going to be like-minded with Christ. It is curious to me, though, how the, the carnal mind is going to be filing objection after objection at the, at the great white throne. That, uh, that, that's the crowd, that's the Lord, Lord crowd when he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And, and they get thrown into the lake of fire because they're not saved. But you'll notice when they're coming before the Lord, they're saying, Lord, Lord, and they start to defend themselves about all the great things they thought they were doing. You know, we did this, we did that, we did this other thing in your name. You know, and, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So that, to me, that, that statement there is quite telling. And I don't think uh, when, when you and I give the account of ourselves to God, there's going to be anything even remotely like that. Because I think we're going to be like the, the, the faithful, good and faithful servant uh, servant number one and servant number two that said, you gave this, we did this. And that's all it was about. It was that third slave, the wicked, lazy slave, who was the one that said, oh, master, I knew you were a, a hard master and you reap where you do not sow. And so I hid your talent in the ground. And here it is. You know, I think it, that third guy was the one that had all the weaselly excuses and complaints. And uh, there's going to be no place for that in this uh, Romans 14 um, 12 or Romans 14 10 why do you judge your brother or you again why do you regard your brother with contempt for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and that keeps us from getting prideful towards any other believer because I stand before the same master you stand before and we're just here in grace wanting to glorify our savior and I think that's a beautiful thing Did that answer what you're asking yes okay the only other thing I would add to that is not only do we give a personal account but I believe uh, Hebrews talks about how pastors are going to give an account. And, uh, and so that's clear as well, because we, uh, Hebrews 13 says, as those who will give an account. And uh, so I'm looking forward to the account I have to give of my flock when I'm able to say, this is a faithful sheep. This is a, a believer that loved the Lord. This is somebody that you know, was a, a student of the Word of God and, and glorified Jesus Christ, because that's, that's an account that the leadership has to give. And I think that's, that's pretty clear out of Hebrews 13. All right, other questions tonight? We'll go to the back row then. Wes has a question. In uh, First Chronicles 21.18, it says that uh, God talks to David through his seer. And God had spoken directly to David in the past. I was just wondering why all of a sudden he would only speak to him through his seer if it was because he was not in fellowship to be in direct communication or what the reasoning behind that was? I, I would agree. Yeah, I think it's kind of speculation at that point. But think about other events like with Nathan when he went and exposed David of, of the adultery and the murder with Bathsheba and Uriah. I think in, in that passage he used Nathan was the prophet there. Here um, he uses Gad to uh, to wake up David in this. And so I, I suspect it was probably a carnality thing that, that David was not in a position where the Lord would speak to him. So that's, uh, I mean, that's a valid inference. I think it's fair to draw from the text, even though it's not explicitly said that way. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. All right, anything else? Last call. Going once, going twice. All right, we'll give... In Psalm 51, uh, David also prays, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. And I'm, I'm thinking he probably lost the joy and needed someone else. 
probably just a thought, another speculation. Oh, sure, sure. No, I think Psalm 51 is right on target with that. That's, his, that's exactly the context for that prayer. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's look at Philippians chapter 3 then. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate you running the microphone there. All right. We have broken this chapter down into four parts, in case you've forgotten. This is really the main bulk of the book right here. In chapter 3, we get uh, really Paul's main address to the Philippians. It starts in 3.1 and goes down to 4.9. So it's all of this chapter plus nine verses of chapter 4 that constitutes the, really the essence of Philippians. Uh, basically, chapters 1 and 2 is background information. Uh, where Paul kind of describes the circumstances of what he's dealing with and why he's thankful that those circumstances have turned out to uh, the greater glory of Jesus Christ. Um, the circumstances of, of uh, the Philippians and the gifts that they sent and the things there. Uh, his desire to possibly send Timothy and possibly send uh, Epaphroditus, those kind of things. I'm, I just kind of describe that as background information in chapter 1 and 2. With the background information out of the way, Paul and Timothy now exhort the Philippians to joyfully keep on pressing onward and upward. And that's what this is about here in, in uh, chapter 3, to press on, to press on uh, onward and upward. And that's what it's about, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. And so it really forms an exhortation that, uh, that all of us can apply. Really, it's a timeless epistle in so many ways. In verses 1 through 6, this main address begins with rejoice and beware. Rejoice and beware. And stress is the spiritual reality of our sign and our seal. And uh, when he says beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision. And we spend a lot of time in that to talk about the sign and seal of our position in Christ. Remember, circumcision was the sign and seal of Israel's covenant relationship with, with the Lord. We have a relationship with the Lord as the bride of Christ, and uh, so we want to understand this not as a shadow or a type or a ritual, but in the reality of our position as the bride. And so we have rejoice and beware. Then uh, after summarizing his impressive credentials, Paul recategorizes them on his profit and loss statement. That was the second part of chapter 3 when we looked at the profit and loss statement in verses 7 through 11. And he took all these very impressive credentials, things that you know you, a human being might rightfully be proud of, and said, it's all lost, it's all worthless, throw it away. He said it's all, uh, you know, he even swore a little bit. There's some vulgar language for feces in that uh, paragraph that talks about, he says all that stuff's just a bunch of and you, he wants to toss it. He wants to flush it. He wants to be done with that because he says the surpassing value is knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay, and so we learn the Greek noun skubalon, and uh, it's the the PG version is count them but rubbish in verse eight, so that I may gain Christ. And then the third part of the book or the chapter, verses twelve through sixteen, uh, the humble attitude equips us all to keep pressing on the upward way. And uh, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, laying hold of that for which also we were laid hold of by Christ Jesus, and pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we're constantly focused upwards, like Colossians talks about, fixing your eyes on the things above. Uh, since we are seated with Christ, let's fix our eyes there and, uh, and keep our attention on the things above. And reaching forward. You know, if we are the rapture generation, then that could come tonight. So let's, uh, let's be faithful tonight 
And let's constantly be, we can think of the goal as the rapture event itself. The goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that trumpet could sound tonight. So let's keep pressing onward and upward. Which brings us then to verses 17 through 21 and what we're going to deal with tonight. This chapter now concludes with a warning against those who are earthly minded and fail to esteem our heavenly citizenship. The chapter concludes with a warning against those who are earthly minded and fail to esteem our heavenly citizenship. And uh, you'll notice, I mean, with all the upward emphasis of uh, verses 12 through 16, he then warns about a group of people that uh, they don't have that mindset, they don't have that attitude. He says, um, many walk, in verse 18, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And they have to be aware of those people. And uh, they have to make sure they're observing the proper example. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. So when you're looking around and you see believers in your congregation and you're evaluating what the walk is and are they walking according to the pattern of, of Scripture, of the Word of God, of the Apostle Paul or Jesus, or um, are they walking according to this other example? Because uh, they are just as observable. They are in the same proximity that the right example is. So, uh, and there's no few number of them. It says many. Many walk. They are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And that's what it comes down to. They're not heavenly minded. And so you've, you, don't wanna, you don't want that darkness to rub off. You don't want to be defiled. You don't want to be imitating that. You're going to realize very quickly there's no harmony between light and darkness, between Christ and Belial, that when you're wanting to walk the, the proper walk of imitating Paul or imitating Christ, and when you want to walk that proper walk, that these enemies of the cross of, of Christ are working against that. And it should become very evident and, um, as, uh, as a matter of personal application there. So that's what we'll talk about. Uh, And then it goes on to say in uh, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. And that's a message that uh, reaches the believers in Philippi unlike any other book of the New Testament. Philippi was unique among, when you compare them to Galatians or Ephesus or Thessalonica or Corinth or, uh, you know, where else were, were New Testament epistles written to, right? Colossae. Uh, the seven churches of Asia Minor. I mean, you think about everywhere that, it, it, other than Rome itself, other than the epistle to the Romans, Philippians was written to a, a Roman colony. It was written to a city whereby the inhabitants were Roman citizens. And so to, to tell these Roman citizens that uh, our citizenship is in heaven, that's a huge wake-up call. That's something that grabs their attention and, and probably insults a fair number of them. All right, and so when when they get insulted by it, they have to do a kind of a gut check to say, "Wait a minute, why does that insult me? Why am I offended?" Why, uh, he's not wrong. We are citizens in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And if this earthly-minded focus is a problem, maybe I'm part of the problem. Maybe I've got to reevaluate how how earthly-minded am I? Is, is are my am I setting my minds on earth on my mind on earthly things? You know, what is it that I'm focused on? And so that'll become a, uh, 
a uh, discussion point as well. So uh, our, our citizenship is in heaven, and any moment now our Savior can come back for us. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait. Notice, it's eagerly wait because it's momentary. It's imminent. It could be now. It could have been any moment in the last 2,000 years. It could be now. Paul expected that he might reach that day, as we discussed in verse 11, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That uh, any believer ought to consider that they are a rapture generation, and today can be the day who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. That's our rapture right there, where we get transformed uh, by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So we have a heavenly citizenship. And that's what we're looking at here. All right, so starting now with the details from verse 17, He calls them brethren, And he says, become fellow imitators with me. Join in following my example. And uh, very similar to um, an expression that he uses in 1 Corinthians 4.16, but it's even more intimate, I think, in this this pattern. Um, He says, the Christian walk is a walk of, of imitation. Paul made imitations and patterns a focal point for his ministry. In fact, he mentioned it again and again and again in many of his different epistles. Either the verb to imitate or the noun for an imitator, or in this case, it's a compound noun for a fellow imitator, a, a sunmemetes. And um, in other passages, he uses a term for a blueprint or a type, something that's a pattern that is to be replicated. And, uh, and in uh, whatever vocabulary he uses, the, uh, the doctrine is clear, is that not only do we have the Word of God telling us what to do and how to live, but we have examples, starting with our Savior, that His life was an example for us to learn from and to emulate. And then with the apostles and uh, the ministry that God gave the apostles in the early church, as, as uh, He will instruct His readers, be imitators of me as I am also an imitator of Christ Jesus. And let me tell you, this doctrine right here, this doctrine of imitation is, is powerful because it's so simple. And it's so ingrained in humanity. I love, you know, I mean, just look at a, look at a kid. Find a small child somewhere, right? And Eliezer just had a baby, or his wife did, and, and, and find some small children, okay? Uh, and just watch what they do. They're copycats. And they'll make little games out of it. And, uh, and they'll copy and they'll imitate and they'll mimic. Sometimes they do it just to tease and, and whatever, just to, you know, quit copying me, quit copying me, and they'll do this stuff. But that's what we're designed to do. God has crafted us. And children are learning from parents and younger siblings are learning from older siblings. And we're very much a, a monkey see, monkey do kind of creation. All right? And that's, uh, that's a good thing. That's by design. And that's, I think it's built in so that even the youngest of children has in their, in their earthly nature, they have a, a programming for, for imitation. And that's the, the imprint within creation that, that shows them that in God's design, what the Word of God says is we're to be imitators. We're to be imitators of, of Christ, imitators of the apostles, imitators of our spiritual leadership and, uh, and the circumstances there. So, um, 
Let's take a look at these, and, and I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Mostly they're Pauline, but even Peter uh, grabbed onto this, and uh, I think Peter was influenced by Paul's writings. So um, we can see that as well. How about 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 and 7? And this is uh, kind of a neat place to start. I, I kind of organize these based on time. Um, I probably should have... Yeah, I guess because the, the, the Thessalonican assembly was first and then the Corinthian assembly based on Paul's second missionary journey. But uh, so starting at 1 Thessalonians 1, 7, 1, 6 and 7. We're going to see right in this very first example that not only is there personal imitation that can happen, individuals imitating, but then there's also even entire congregational imitation that can happen. Whereas a flock, they can become an imitator of another flock uh, and examples that are set in other churches and other places. And that's uh, to me, that's also interesting. So um, this is a thank you letter. Very clearly from verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. And uh, the things that he recalls about them, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. How powerful is that? Faith, hope, love, the greatest of these is love. They had all three. These guys are like the anti-Corinth when it comes down to it. He had, Paul had every, everything uh, thankful for these guys. He says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And that right there says the whole content of this slide. That one verse encapsulates everything I'm going to give you here tonight, okay? Or much of what I'm going to give you here tonight. Is that there is a gospel that's good news information, content, but then there's also example. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your name's sake. And so there's the message, but then there's also the example of the messengers. There's the example of what, what kind of people are these people that have come here to preach this message. And both are in view. They have to be in view. Because if the message is great, but the, the, the people preaching it are, are a train wreck, well, wait a minute. What is this? You know, what, kind of, what kind of hypocrite is going on here? What is this? See, and, uh, and are you going to be preaching one thing and then living something else? I mean, wasn't that what the Pharisees were all guilty of? They, they would put, tie burdens upon people, but they themselves wouldn't lift so much as a finger. And so uh, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord and of the Lord. So there you see it. And it's, it's uh, a, a double imitation when it comes down to it. If you're imitating your spiritual leaders and your spiritual leaders are imitating the Lord, well then there you go. How simple is that? Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, you got to realize if you're receiving the truth that there's conflict that comes with that. There's going to be a price to pay. There's going to be uh, some opposition when, uh, you know, the adversary doesn't want truth going out there, so that's pretty easy to attack. And, uh, you know, and it becomes then the test. Are these, uh, are these the stony ground Christians that are going to peel away when the heat starts to, starts to hit, when some of the affliction starts to hit? Or are, are they planted in good depths of soil? Are they going to 
Are they going to continue on? Because you'll notice the imitation doesn't stop with verse 6. You say, well, okay, yeah, I can be an imitator of the Lord. But then, wait a minute, verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) And some people will draw the line there and say, oh, 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 not me. No, 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 no. You know, I'm with you as far as, okay, I've got to be an imitator of Jesus. I'm, I'm cool with that as long as I don't have to take a cross or anything or suffer. Um, I'll, I'll be an imitator with Jesus. But then, wait a minute, now you're telling me that somebody else is going to be imitating me? That, that this, this game goes past me to the next generation or to the next person? or to the And, and for some folks, that's, that's, a, that's a bridge too far. That's, uh, well, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. Yeah, they were okay with it as long as it's all about them, but now it goes past them. Somebody else is going to be imitating them. And so you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Well, guess what? Achaia includes uh, Corinth. (laughs) It includes those schismatic believers in Corinth. And Paul was able to preach to them and say, hey, let me tell you about Thessalonica. Let me tell you about believers that are really humble before the Lord. And that... uh, provided opportunity there. And so it's all about imitation. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool. Verse 8 goes on to say, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. You know, I mean, when it comes right down to it, that that little Bible church there um, got two letters written to them that ended up in the New Testament, and we're still preaching about them two thousand years later. You know, so how much fruit have they borne in these two thousand years? When it comes, you know, when all that gets racked up, uh, how, however that gets accounted for. And so, what is the what is the reputation then? What is the legend? What is Austin Bible Church known for when, when you know, uh, the word of the Lord goes forth from here? And uh, are, are we known for? Uh, what are we known for? Well, hopefully we're known for our teaching. We're known for our dedication to doctrine. We're known for the training ministry and the pastors that have gone out of here that are now pastoring churches and other places and that. And so uh, these things get reported and, and there you go. That's for the glory of Jesus Christ, not for us to be bragging about related to, uh, related to that. All right. Uh, another example comes in Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians 3.9. And um, this is a problem when you have busy bodies and undisciplined people. And evidently there was a little bit of that that was happening here. Um, in First Thessalonians there was not even a hint of any kind of rebuke, but by the time Second Corinthians or Second Thessalonians comes along, there's this uh, this item here. Um, verse six says, "We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life." not according to the tradition which you receive from us. And so you have imitation and then you have, uh, you know, anti-imitation. You've got going out and doing your own thing. You're out of step. You're, uh, you're doing the whole I gotta be me routine of, uh, was that Frank Sinatra or what was the, I did it my way, what, what have you. So um, if it's not according to the, the, the pattern of Christ and the apostles, what are you doing? And uh, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example 
because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And uh, as a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting because Paul wasn't there very long. And during the time that he was there, there was conflict and and Jason had to put up money. And so uh, I I can't imagine that that did good things for their church budget when, uh, you know, money gets tied up like that. And uh, thankfully the Philippians were able to send some money more than once. Uh, even in Thessalonica, the Philippians were able to, to provide. And so they weren't a burden to any of the Thessalonians, is what it says here. Uh, verse 9, not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. So that you would follow our example. And that's, uh, that's, that's the prime importance right there. It's about imitation. And um, I tell you, if, uh, if, uh, if a man's not willing to, to be scrutinized, then uh, he probably isn't being called to ministry because it's called the fishbowl and then you'll be criticized, your wife will be criticized, your kids will be criticized, uh, everything imaginable, the car you drive and everything else. It's amazing the things that, that come up for, for criticism. Uh, so just, you know, give it to the Lord and deal with it. That's, the, that's what's going to happen. So... Uh, this is what he's talking about here. And then he goes on. Uh, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, he is not to eat. You know, hunger is a great motivator. And if, if, uh, if uh, you know, the, the busybody, uh, he's got time to butt into everybody else's business, then he's got time to look for work and, and, and take care of that and, and, uh, and so forth. Because we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Okay? And that's a, that's a, that's a concern for everybody related to that. And so that's uh, the exhortation there. All right, over to 1 Corinthians then, kind of the opposite of, of Thessalonica. But he comes back to this expression again and again. And 1 Corinthians 4 is probably the closest parallel to Philippians 3, um, only because the, 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 the vocabulary and the syntax is, is fairly close. 4, 16, and 17. He says, therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. And uh, this is a, it's a verb of being and it's a noun. It's not a, just like in Philippians, it's a, it's a verb of being and it's a noun. So um, that, that then I think becomes more important. Uh, he doesn't use the verb to say, copy me. The verb that he uses is the verb of becoming. And so he says, become an imitator. Understand the difference? I mean, it's one thing to, uh, you know, ask somebody to, uh, you know, call upon Lewis to stand and perform his best Pastor Bob imitation, right? And, you know, sometimes you get verse, you know, impersonators or impressionists and whatever. It's not about impersonating a person but becoming an imitator. That's a big difference. So it's not commanding you to copy, it's commanding you to be an imitator. And it's a verb of being, both in Philippians 3 and in here. And the noun is mimetes, so like be a mimic, be a mime, be a mimic, become a mimic of the Apostle Paul. And the compound term in Philippians is even better because it combines soon, the prefix soon, 
with the noun of mimetes and uh, become a fellow mimic in that. All right. But four, uh, 1 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore I exhort you, become an imitator, a Pauline imitator. Become an imitator of me. And to help you do this, I'm going to send you Timothy. Because if you want to know how to be a, a, a Paul imitator, Timothy will, uh, will show you by example. So for this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He's like a chip off the old block. He's like, uh, you know, uh, like Paul Jr. when it comes to imitating Paul. He is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ. And he's going to do so in, in, in his words and by the content of what he teaches, but he's going to do so more so in his lifestyle and his behavior and his, in his demeanor and his attitude in his bearing. He will remind you of his ways, which were in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Um, well, how about that? He will remind you of my ways. You mean that's, that's something important? That's uh, an imitator of, of, of traditions and practices and ways and customs? As, just as I teach everywhere in every church. And so that becomes the, uh, the command there. Over to chapter 10. Ten six. When he's warning them about um, the Exodus generation here with Moses and the, the rock, he says, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. You know, the fact that not only do we have one another to imitate and have examples for, but we got two complete testaments now. We've got a Hebrew canon. We've got a Greek canon. We've got Hebrew scriptures. We've got Greek scriptures. We've got how many examples do we have in the Word of God for, uh, I mean, think about it, you know, if you think back to the last 10 sins you committed, um, I bet you there's a, a biblical illustration of those somewhere. Okay? <laughs> and you'll find the examples of, uh, you know, uh, a temper tantrum or examples of uh, of stealing something or examples of, of fornication or, I mean, whatever. Um, all testing is common to man and all of our struggles are, uh, it's not like we're inventing them in our generation. They've, they've been around. And, and the scriptures give these examples. And so craving evil things, is that an issue for you? Are you really uh, struggling with that? Are you finding that you're, you're longing for the, uh, the meat and fish and garlic of, of Egypt? You find that you're just uh, lamenting the days gone by like these, these guys did that walked through the Red Sea and then started to lament the fact that uh, they wish they could go back to Egypt. Well, that's an example for us and we better learn from that example so that we would not crave the evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. If you find you've got an idolatry issue, just find several examples in Scripture where that doesn't work out too well for the people pursuing idolatry nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day i mean does god hold these things seriously or not and why do i think i i have an exemption somehow i'm special the rules don't apply to me i'm going to get away with what now how is it that i think god's unaware of of 
this secret thing I think I'm getting away with? Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, a type, a pattern. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so not only is this impressed upon us in a, in a very serious way, but it spotlights that, that uh, you know, God recorded all these things in the Scriptures, and now it's, it's, a, it's a bequest, it's a gift to the bride of Christ in the church age, and we are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We're the bride. We're baptized in union with Christ. We've got a, a royal family of God position and privilege that no other stewardship has ever had. And so um, this, is, uh, this is serious. To whom much is given shall much be required. We better learn from these examples. Chapter 11 and verse 1. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And so this is, I think this... Maybe I should have put this one up front because this one, I think, defines everything else. If, uh, if, if your pastor is not imitating Christ, then don't imitate him, <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, I'm not going to name names, but there's, there's some very famous um, church guys that call themselves pastors, and they've got big churches and big basketball stadium churches, and, and they write a lot of books and they make millions of dollars and they live in mansions. And um, does, the, does the New Testament admonish us to imitate those guys? I would uh, submit that only so far as they imitate Christ. And if there are some things that appear to not be Christ-like, I would kind of raise my spiritual eyebrows and, and look to some scriptures and say, you know, it's uh, not something I'm comfortable imitating. Uh, my conscience won't uh, won't imitate that. So, uh, as it says, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. I praise you, because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. And so we have commands, we have teachings, we have doctrines, we have customs, we have traditions, we have practices, and all these things. And there is value in them as so far as they are consistent with the Word of God and they're consistent with Christ. Now, you know, if, uh, for example, if somebody that was ordained at Austin Bible Church happened to be pastoring in a different church somewhere and he just happened to <clears throat> change and decide that it works better for them to do communion on the first Sunday of the month instead of the second Sunday of the month, well, you know, <laughs> great, all right, Where this is grace, we're the age of grace, have fun, whatever. You know, if, 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 it, if that's what works for your folks and where you are, then there you have it. You know, we're not, we're not slaves to some kind of a cult or some kind of a legalistic, you know, we're not under law. There's no scripture that says thou shalt do communion on the second Sunday of the month. So they've got all the authority we have to, to pick what works best and, uh, and make those decisions accordingly. All right. <laughs> Over to, of course, Philippians. Now, when we see it not only here in chapter 3, where again, it's not a command to imitate, but it's a command to become something. 
Genomai is the verb, and it's to become, to become something you're presently not, to become. And then it really is a compound. Not only is it the noun for an imitator, which is memetes, but it's a sum memetes. It, it puts a prefix on the front of memetes. And so it's like now you're not just the imitator, you're a synchronized imitator, synchronized with Paul as he mimics. Uh, and so that's 317, of course, join in following my example. Uh, combine in my example, the example of me. And so uh, he, he wants them to, to get on board and, and so that the Philippians can be the same role models that Paul is. And that's uh, what, a, what a great in, uh, invitation that is. And then, uh, of course, warning about the, the, the bad example after that. But then over to chapter 4, where it gets restated, I think pr- quite explicitly, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Well, that, that looks awfully personal. And that looks kind of involved. In fact, I'd rather just, I'd kind of rather just end this verse with the word learned, right? Can't we just say the things you learned from me? Isn't that good enough? I was in Bible class. I learned something. Wasn't, isn't learning everything? If doctrine should be everything in a, in a doctrinal Bible church. But wait a minute. So learned, it starts with learned. It can't be separate from the learning of the Word of God. But then in addition to contemporaneous with the learning is receiving. Ah, receiving. So you can learn a doctrine, but you can receive a tradition. You can receive a practice. You can receive a custom. And heard and seen in me. And so not only is it a message, but it's also an example. It's also the example that's set by the messenger. Heard and seen in me. Practice these things. <laughs> so you can't be a hearer of the Word of God and not a doer only, right? You've got you to be, uh, did I say that right? You've got to be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. And so you've got to practice these things. It's not enough that you learn them. It's not enough that you receive them or that you saw them or that you heard them. So it's been reinforced three and four different times already. Now you actually got to go out and use it, put it to practice, practice these things. And in so doing and in the practicing of these things, the God of peace will be with you. There's a uh, fellowship and an intimacy with God the Father for those that are practicing the Word of God. And uh, there you go. So imitation, we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4.12. And uh, you realize that uh, in the end times, things get tough and uh, there's going to be false doctrine out there and all kinds of things. So don't have anything to do with that. Uh, Verse 6, and pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. So he's teaching and he's exemplifying but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For, and then, you know, it talks about the, the uh, setting that example. Prescribe and teach these things. Verse 11, let no one look down on your youthfulness. And that's extraordinary to me. Because when you track this, 
Timothy has been traveling with Paul for a minimum of 10 years, probably more. And yet he's still youthful to the point that he will be looked down upon by the older believers in Ephesus. So however youthful he is, you know, is it uh, a pastor in his 20s no one listens to or in his 30s or uh, when, when do you start to get credibility of maybe knowing something? Um, and then, you know, but realizing that, that he was 10 years younger than that when Paul first sent him into Thessalonica. He may have been 12 years old at that point. Anyway, it's, we're kind of guessing when we put these numbers together. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. It's not all about the teaching. It starts there, but then there's, there's the whole rest of it. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. So yeah, you can do potlucks, you can do fellowships, you can do picnics, and whatever else you want to do. But item number one on the agenda is the doctrine. It's the teaching. The public reading of Scripture, exhortation and teaching. Don't neglect your gift. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. If you've got a younger pastor, guess what? The whole church gets to watch him grow up. And they're supposed to. It's supposed to be a great experience, see. And if you get other circumstances that are happening, like, you know, I, I tremble when I think about, um, you know, when a guy like Emil retires. You know, man, pray for the kid that follows him. Uh, when, when Todd Kennedy retires, who's going into Spokane? Who's going to follow a guy that's been there 40 years? And when an old man, you know, somebody of the caliber of, of, of a of uh, Glenn Carnegie or uh, John Miller or R.B. Theme or, or, or Ralph Braun. I mean, you talk about pressure on the, on the, the kid that goes in there. Uh, you just need a ton of grace and you need the Lord to be center stage and you need uh, patience one with another. And, and if, he's, if he's making mistakes and learning, I mean, isn't, isn't experience the, the definition of that is learning from your mistakes? So don't you, you know, do you allow him to make any? And, uh, and Lewis is learning this now with the different pulpit committees he's, he's engaging in. And some of these guys, you know, um, they don't want a younger pastor. They want their dead pastor to come back from heaven, right? They want a, they want a clone of, of, of the, the, the dead pastor to come back. They want something, and it's just, it's not going to be like that. So get a young guy. If you want somebody to give you another 40 years, then he's not going to be in his, in his you know, he's going to be younger. All right. So take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Phase one, two, or three? Two, thank you. Phase two, salvation. Excellent. And so set the example. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so there's teaching. This is a seminary formula right here. How do you found a a seminary? You train men and you do so in the presence of many witnesses. You don't pack them off to an ivory tower somewhere where they're in isolation and nobody knows what kind of uh, apostasy they're being brainwashed into. You keep them right there with the flock that they're learning the same doctrine the flock's learning, they're teaching the same doctrine, 
And you have this, uh, this fellowship while the young man is trained. And uh, the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, so it's all available for the imitation. Entrust these to faithful men. Find the next generation of copycats. <laughs> all right? And encourage them. And then instill within them that when they get in their pulpits, they're going to do the same thing all over again. And this is, uh, this is marvelous too, by the way. And this, this talks about the distributed nature of local churches around the world, of training around the world. This is totally in defiance of... Paul doesn't say, hey, if you think you've got a young pastor in your church, send him to Peter, the first pope over in Rome, so that he can have the, uh, the right apostolic succession on his ordination ceremony. He doesn't say that. He says, you train them. And when they get to where they're going, they can train others. And when they get to where they're going, they can train others. And it's just going to spread out like one great big monster uh, you know, network marketing thing. It's going to scatter all over the world in, in, uh, in where it goes. All right. Chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Now you followed my teaching. And again, this is another one of those verses that a lot of doctrinal Bible church people want to say, well, stop the verse there. Teaching is everything. Well, it's not everything in this verse. It says, you follow, it's first, yes, it's first and foremost. It starts everything else. And if the teaching is off track, none of the rest of this can follow. But if the teaching is on track, then all of the rest of this has to follow. You followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Remember, that's where Paul was stoned to death. They dragged him out of the city. They thought he was dead. And then in the morning he gets back up and goes back into the town again. That was Timothy's hometown. He was from there. He's a kid watching this stuff. No wonder he, uh, next time Paul came back through town, he said, I want to join that group. I want to, I want to follow him. I, out of what persecutions I endured and out of them all, the Lord rescued me. So this is what imitations and patterns are all about. Titus 2.7 As uh, Titus 2 says, as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. Older men, and you know who you are. We don't have to call you out. (laughs) Because the younger men are looking at you. The younger men are looking at you, see. Older women, likewise, (laughs) you know who you are. Be reverent in your behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. There's a teaching example there. and There's a ministry the older women can have that the pastor can't have. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, Sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So it's the whole thing about patterns, imitations. Very Pauline. All these are Pauline passages. The one place that's not Pauline is 1 Peter 5.3. And I think Peter admitted that he had been reading Paul's epistles and didn't understand some of them, but he, uh, he was reading. And in 1 Peter 5... He talks about setting the example. He 
tells his, these elders here, he says, I'm not the first pope, I'm just your fellow elder. And he says, uh, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd, you're here to shepherd. Isn't that beautiful? Because this is the same knucklehead that was on that beach when Jesus said, do you love me more than these? Shepherd, my, feed my flock, tend my lambs. Okay, that whole shepherding impact from John 21 sunk in and over the years and now here's Peter putting it in his own epistle. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness. If you're in it for the paycheck, you're a hireling, you're not a shepherd. Then it says in verse 3, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Lording it. And that's, that's a funny, funny term because it takes the kurios noun for the Lord and turns it into a verb. Like you're going to lord it. You're not the Lord. So don't lord it. Over those allotted to your charge. Do you have sheep that have been entrusted to you? Well, you didn't do that. Jesus did that. He allotted them to you. Those allotted to your charge. Who does the allotting? You know, when you talk about allotments, you don't do the allotting. The sheep don't do the allotting. Sometimes I think they do. Jesus does the allotting. Jesus takes the sheep and puts them where he wants them, allotted to your charge. So don't lord it over them. Be faithful. Prove to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so that's the, the, the Peter's uh, expression for why it's important to be uh, an example. Because imitations and patterns, it's a focal point for the church age. Now we'll come back to this because um, the importance of having right patterns becomes critical in view of the wrong patterns all too frequently imitated. And here's the thing, we've got wrong patterns everywhere. And sadly, they get most of the shelf space in the bookstores. Okay? <laughs> Think about it. And, and there's an attitude, there's a mindset that, ooh, this has to be the right way to do it because look how big this church is. Look how much money they've got. Look at, look at this. Look at that. Look at these other things. You know, here's a guy that's written 50 books. Here's a guy that's got all this stuff. And wow, that's what must be what we want to do. And so, and, and particularly Americans are, are uh, maybe the worst of the worst in doing this. We, 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 we don't do anything half-hearted. We, we, we grab both hands and jump into, if, if there's a fad out there, you know, we're going to grab it and run with it, okay? And so we're going to do, you know, we're going to do purpose-driven for five years, or we're going to do, you know, seeker-friendly for five years, or we're going to jump onto a, you know, the next fad, whatever the next one is that's coming down the line, Okay? There's always another one on deck for when this one kind of exhausts the uh, enthusiasm. And uh, when those profits kind of start to dwindle, then there's another big exciting thing to jump on board. And, ooh, we've got we to do this thing next. Because it's the latest trend. It's the latest thing. And, and they confuse. They've got a definition of, um, of, uh, of, of, of uh, success based upon what works. It's a, it's a, it's a practicality or a a pragmatism that says, well, it works. It fills, the, it fills the seats. And if it fills the seats, that's got to be a good thing, right? And uh, wait a minute, stop, ask ourselves, what are we doing and why are we doing it? Is it biblical? 
Does it honor the Lord? Is it consistent with truth? Okay? <laughs> and then you stop and ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And you end up marketing a bracelet thing and I'll get all kinds of... <laughs> because like I say, Americans don't do anything just half-hearted. Uh, they'll, find a, they'll find a knick-knack to go with, with that too. But... Um, so we're going to talk about this because the importance of right patterns becomes critical in view of the wrong patterns all too frequently imitated. And this crowd, they're, they're everywhere. And they're in the churches. And they, they, uh, they, seem like, uh, they seem like they're us. But we're going to find out that they're not us because their end is destruction. And we're not destined for destruction. We're destined for eternal life in Jesus Christ. So uh, we've got, we got to be aware of this. All right. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth. I pray that as we consider these things that you would open our eyes to the applications. And Father, I, um, I use some examples and I name some names and uh, you know the answer to the same Lord I do, Father. I'm not judging these men and what they're doing, but I want to speak with discernment and I want to warn my flock and I want particularly, um, I, don't, I would not want my sheep to be caught up in a, in a fad or a craze and... Um, and just going off the rails, Father. So, so there it is. And I just thank you for being faithful. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, folks, keep your armor on. We will see you here.